0: Why is the resurrection of Jesus important? We set aside a Sunday every year to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Why do we do that? Isn't the really important thing Jesus' death on the cross? Is the resurrection really that important? Well, this morning I'd like to look at what the resurrection of Jesus accomplished And in order to do that, I want to start us off with a short, concise statement that the Apostle Paul makes as part of the longer argument of the book of Romans. And then we'll look at the resurrection story itself. And finally, we'll see six important things that Jesus' resurrection accomplished. Okay, in the book of Romans, Paul makes this statement. He says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul's referring to Jesus' death and resurrection when he says that. Jesus was delivered up, that's his death, and he was raised, that's his resurrection. When Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, that means that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Sin is missing the mark you're aiming for the bullseye and you don't hit it. If you're the archer, it's like even just missing the target altogether. But the specific word that Paul uses here is the word trespass. Now, we've all seen no trespassing signs, right? No trespassing. Trespassers will be shot. It means that there's a line, a boundary, that you may not cross. And if you do cross the line, then you're trespassing. If I came upon a no trespassing sign and I just walk right past the sign and through the property and I came to the person's house and I walk right into their house and I lay down in their bed and take a nap like Goldilocks, am I trespassing? Yes, obviously that's trespassing, right? Well, What if I pass the no trespassing sign and I walk through the property but I stayed outside the house? Am I still trespassing? Yeah, I'm still trespassing. What if I pass the no trespassing sign and just go a couple of yards in? Maybe set up a tree stand and hunt for the day in that spot. Would I be trespassing? Yeah, I'm still trespassing. Why is that trespassing? Because I went over the line. I went past the boundary. When God tells us that we have trespassed his authority What does he mean? What is the line? What's the boundary? Well, the boundary is God's holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. As the king, he has given his law. That's the boundary. And anything I do that violates God's standard is a trespass. It doesn't matter how far across the line I go, I'm a trespasser. And the penalty for trespassing God's standard is death and separation from him. Every one of us has trespassed that boundary. Every one of us rightfully deserves death and separation from God. And when Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, he's saying that Jesus paid the death penalty for his people on the cross. That's the significance of the cross. Jesus pays the penalty for my sin. He pays the penalty for anyone who belongs to him, anyone who has submitted to him as Lord. And then Paul says that Jesus was raised for our justification. Justification means being declared right or not guilty in the eyes of the court. And in God's court, we are justified, we're declared righteous because of the resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of a summary statement for what the resurrection accomplished. But this morning, I want to break that down a little bit more so that we see more clearly what the resurrection of Jesus accomplished. So turn with me in your Bible to Luke 24. We were already there this morning. We're going to go a little farther down into the passage now. Luke 24. We We read the story of the resurrection itself, but I want to share um, two short passages with you while you're turning to Luke 24. Okay, So while you're turning, these are are passages from earlier in the Gospel of Luke, from earlier in the story of Jesus' ministry. And uh, once you've turned to Luke 24, you can look up on the screen and I'll show you these passages here. The first one is Luke 9, 21 and 22. And it says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So this comes right after the discussion of the question about who Jesus is. Right after the discussion about who Jesus is. Peter has said that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The promised deliverer, the king. And now that Jesus has been identified as the Messiah, Jesus tells his disciples just what that means. It means that he's going to die. He won't be accepted as a glorious king. He'll be rejected and killed. And that's actually how he's going to accomplish his mission of delivering his people. But he also says that after three days, he will rise from the dead. And what I want you to just see there is that Jesus prophesied his resurrection. He said ahead of time that this would happen. And the other passage I want to show you before we look at Luke 24 is from Luke 18. It's verses 31 to 33. And taking the 12, he said to them, "See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Son of Man is, is Jesus's kind of favorite term to, to refer to himself. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Just like we saw before, again, Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection. So earlier in the service, we read Luke 24, 1 through 12. There we saw the story of the resurrection itself. The tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away so that anyone can see. The grave clothes in which Jesus was wrapped are still there, but he himself is gone. He has risen in his physical body. Let's look together now at the end of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 36. Okay, follow along as I read Luke 24, starting in verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. So that's the disciples should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus had risen physically. He was recognizable. He was touchable. He ate food in his physical body. This is no hallucination. This is no spirit It's not that the disciples still carried Jesus with them in their hearts, even though he was really dead. No, it's nothing like that. He was truly risen from the dead. Now look at the very end, starting in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, And we're continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus ascends into heaven. And we learn from scripture that he takes his place at God's throne, seated on the throne, ruling and reigning from heaven. So Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. We've seen that Jesus prophesied his own death and his resurrection. We've seen the account of his resurrection and now I want to answer the question, what does the resurrection accomplish? And there are many things, okay? I'm going to just, this morning, going to highlight six of them. What is the cause for celebration on Easter Sunday? All right, number one, Jesus' resurrection confirms Jesus' words. Jesus' resurrection confirms Jesus' words, Jesus prophesied that he would be killed and that after three days he would rise from the dead. When the women came to the tomb on Sunday morning, Matthew tells us that the angel there told them, I I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen as he said. So the resurrection confirms Jesus' words. It tells us that he's a true prophet. We can trust his words because what he says is true. There have been many false prophets throughout human history. In modern times, false prophets who claim to be Christians are usually prophesying about something like the return of Christ. And the Bible does teach that Jesus will return, but it also says that we don't know when. But false prophets like to predict exactly when Jesus is going to return. One example of that is Edgar Wisnant. Uh, Wizenant said that Jesus would return and the church would be raptured away in September of 1988. He published a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. Well, September 1988 came and went and he recalculated and said it was actually going to happen in 1989. And he did the same thing all the way through 1993. He's a false prophet because what he said would happen didn't happen. Gary DeMar writes a lot about end times Bible prophecy, but he writes with a thoroughly biblical worldview and understanding. In an article, he wrote this. He said, a few years ago, I received an email from a man claiming that the end would take place before the end of the year. He told me that he was certain So I sent him a contract asking him to sign over all his property to me on January 1st of the following year. He wouldn't do it. Jesus is different from all of these false prophets. What he said really happened. The resurrection confirms Jesus' words and that tells you that you can trust him. When he says that faith in him will save you, you can trust him, you can believe him. When he says, I am with you, You can believe him. The resurrection confirms Jesus' words. Number two, Jesus' resurrection begins Jesus' exaltation. Jesus' resurrection begins Jesus' exaltation. The whole story of Jesus becoming a man, entering our world, living and ministering in Israel as a Jewish man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, ruling and reigning there, that whole story is sometimes summarized with these two words, humiliation and exaltation. Jesus' humiliation is his condescending to earth to suffer and to serve and to die. And Jesus' exaltation is his return to heaven to rule and reign as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The humiliation of Jesus is summarized in a passage like Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is Jesus' humiliation. It's Jesus' resurrection, though, that begins his exaltation. The resurrection is kind of the hinge point between his humiliation and his exaltation. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 46 asks, what was the estate of Christ's humiliation? And the answer is the estate of Christ's humiliation was his low condition, which we just read about in Philippians, wherein he, for our sakes, emptying himself of his glory, took upon him the form of a servant in his conception and birth, life, death, And after his death, till his resurrection. See, the resurrection is the end of his humiliation and the beginning of his exaltation. The exaltation of Christ is described in a passage like Ephesians 1. 19 to 22, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. See, the resurrection marks the point at which Jesus' humiliation ends and his exaltation begins. Think about the story of Joseph. Joseph begins in an exalted position. He's the favorite of the 12 sons of Jacob. But then he goes through humiliation, the rejection of his brothers, being sold into slavery, being thrown into prison in Egypt. And then he rises from that humiliation, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, being made second in command in Egypt Uh, leading Egypt successfully through the great famine. And that pattern, descending in humiliation, rising in exaltation, points us to Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, in a lecture that he gave on 1 Corinthians 15, said this. He said, Christ appears gloriously exalted above all evil in his resurrection and ascension into heaven. When Christ rose from the dead, Then it appeared that he was above death, which, though it had taken him captive, could not hold him. The resurrection demonstrates Jesus' victory over death and sin. And so the resurrection begins Christ's exaltation. Number three, Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' work of redemption. Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' work of redemption. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God's declaration that Jesus' work of redemption was complete. Son of God is a royal title. Human kings were called the sons of God that title means something royal. And in the resurrection Jesus is declared to be the son of God, the king who lives and represents his people. Imagine that there's an exclusive community that you would like to join. And You know, maybe when you think exclusive community, you think of something like a golf community. So if you're a golfer, think golf community. But if you're not a golfer, let's say you're a a hunter or fisher, you know, picture a group of ranches or something. The kind of community that you yourself would want to be a part of. Okay. Picture that community. But there's an admission cost. In fact, the admission cost is incredibly high. If you were to literally sell everything that you own, your house, your cars, everything, you couldn't even come close to having a small fraction of what it would cost to join this community. You simply would not ever be able to join. Well, when we sinned against God, we incurred a debt, a debt that has to be paid if we're ever going to be allowed into the community of God's presence The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death or separation from God. Your wages are your paycheck, your earnings for the work that you've done. Well, what you've earned for the work of sin that you have done, your wages, is death. A sin debt that you owe to God that must be paid. Separation from God for all eternity. That's a debt that no matter how long you pay on it, You can never fully repay it. You can't get into that community. It also takes perfect holiness to be allowed into the community of God's presence. And since we're sinners, we can never meet that standard. It's too late. We can never make ourselves perfectly holy because we already fall short of that standard because of our sin. But in Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus pays the death penalty for his people. He pays the sin debt of his people. And if we have faith in him as our representative, our Lord and King, then his holiness, his righteousness stands for us. We can be part of the community of God's presence based on the righteousness of Christ. So, when Jesus offered himself up as the sacrifice for the sins of his people, how do we know if God accepted that sacrifice? How do we know if our sin debt is fully paid? Well, the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' sacrifice. Caspar Olevianus was a German theologian who helped lead the Protestant Reformation. He's one of the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism. On his deathbed, he was asked, are you undoubtedly sure of your salvation as you taught others constantly? And his reply was, most certain. So what was it that he taught that gave him that kind of certainty? Well, regarding the resurrection, he wrote this in an explanation of the Apostles' Creed as we recited this morning. He said, for since he, Christ, died not in his own sins, but in ours, which had been laid on him. And since he rose again out of them to a life that will never die, a wonderful light shines on the minds of all believers. Not even one of all their sins remains unatoned for. For if even one of all their sins had remained, then Christ could not have arisen as our surety and guarantor of the covenant. That's why Olevianus could lay on death's doorstep and answer most certain. Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' work of redemption. Number four, Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. When he writes to the church in Philippi, Paul tells the believers that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He's saying that just as Jesus was raised in a glorified body, we too will one day be raised from the dead in a glorified body. Then Paul, in a letter that he writes to the church in Corinth, he gives his most complete explanation of the resurrection. In chapter 15, he writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So just like the firstfruits of the harvest means there's more to come, Jesus' resurrection means there's more to come, our resurrection The Bible holds Abraham up as a model of faith for us, an example of what it looks like to trust God. One of the greatest tests of Abraham's faith was when God told him to take his only son Isaac and sacrifice him to the Lord. Now, Abraham knew that God had promised he would give Abraham many descendants through Isaac but now he has this command. So how does Abraham reconcile these two things? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And listen to this he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, Abraham knew that God always keeps his promises. And he knew that God had the power to give life even when there wasn't any. After all, he'd given Abraham and Sarah Isaac, When Sarah was 90 years old and Abraham was 100 years old, and as far as having a child goes, they were as good as dead. If God could do that, Abraham reasoned, then he could bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham knew God had the power of resurrection. So Christians can face death with hope, knowing that God will one day raise us from the dead. And that confidence is confirmed by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Number five, Jesus' resurrection qualifies Jesus to minister as the great high priest. Jesus' resurrection qualifies Jesus to minister as the great high priest. The risen Christ has ascended into heaven and now serves as our great high priest. He's offered the blood of his own sacrifice before God as an atonement for the sins of his people. The earthly priests who served in the tabernacle and the temple were a shadow. They were a picture of what Jesus would one day do. Hebrews 9 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The earthly tabernacle was modeled after a heavenly reality. The earthly priests carried out duties that modeled what Christ would do for us in the heavenly reality. The sacrifices offered in the earthly tabernacle modeled the ultimate sacrifice that was made by Jesus on the cross. That same chapter in Hebrews goes on to say, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus, in his glorified body, his resurrection body, is uniquely qualified to enter the heavenly tabernacle and to serve as our high priest. In J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, one of the great final battles is the Battle of Pelennor Fields. And in that battle, Eowyn, who is the niece of King Theoden of Rohan, has entered the battle disguised as a man. She desperately wanted to do her part to fight for her people. Also in this battle, the greatest evil warrior, one that strikes terror into the hearts of his opponents, is on the field. And there was a prophecy or kind of an oracle about this particular warrior that stated that he could not be defeated by any living man. And Eowyn confronts this creature as he has been threatening her, and she says, Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. He replies, Hinder me? Thou fool, no living man may hinder me. And Eowyn's response was, But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. And then she proceeds to kill him. You see, Eowyn had a qualification. That no other soldier in Rohan's army had. She was not a man. She was unique in that qualification. Jesus is uniquely qualified to serve as a high priest in heaven. No other earthly priest would be qualified to do this. Why? Because every earthly priest was a sinner. Earthly priests were qualified on the basis of being descended from a particular family in the tribe of Levi. They were appointed, Hebrews says, in their weakness, having to continually offer sacrifices for their own sins, as well as for those of the people. But Jesus, in his resurrection, is uniquely qualified to serve as our high priest. Hebrews 7 tells us that Jesus has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. It wasn't enough for Jesus simply to make the sacrifice on the cross. He also had to present the sacrifice in the heavenly Holy of Holies, the throne room of God, and the resurrection qualifies him to do this. The Dutch Puritan Wilhelmus Obrackel writes about how the risen and ascended Jesus was qualified for this high priestly work. He says, the high priestly office of Christ also demanded his ascension. In the Old Testament, it was not sufficient for the high priest to kill the animal. His office required that he would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood. It was likewise not sufficient that Christ suffered and died outside the gate and that he died to atone for the sins of his people. But with his blood, that is with the efficacy of his suffering, Christ entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. These two elements of his high priestly ministry cannot be separated for if he were on earth, that is, if Christ had not entered, He should not be a priest. The resurrection qualifies Jesus to serve as our great high priest. And then finally, number six, Jesus' resurrection qualifies Jesus to rule as king. Jesus' resurrection qualifies Jesus to rule as king. The resurrection of Jesus is followed by his ascension and enthronement. That's his exaltation. Jesus has become king. In Peter's sermon, in Acts chapter 2, we hear this Jesus God raised up. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about Jesus being king only in a spiritual sense. He's the king of my heart. No, he's actually king of the whole world. He's ruling and reigning Right now, Paul says in that great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed, Paul says, is death itself. That's our resurrection. That's the end of the last enemy, death, when we are raised. That is Jesus defeating death. Not only does the kingship of Jesus have implications for our future after death, though, it has implications now. Jesus rules and reigns now. And all rulers on earth are bound to submit to him. Think of the message of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed is his Messiah, that's Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The rulers of this world do not want to follow the laws of God. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, Zion, my holy hill. When God says that he set his king on Zion, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. He laughs at the rulers of this world who are opposed to him Because he says, I've put my king in place, the king of the whole world, and that's Jesus. And now the psalm switches to being the king, Jesus, who's speaking. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, you are my son, the son of God. Remember, that's a royal term. How did Jesus become the son of God in that sense? How did he become the king? Remember what Paul said in Romans 1, that it was in the resurrection that God declared him to be the son of God. And then, as the king continues with what the Lord said to him, he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then the psalm switches one more time now to being advice to the rulers of this world. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In verse 8 of that psalm, God the Father invites the Son to ask for the nations as his heritage and possession. In the resurrection, Jesus has taken the throne. Do we think that Jesus forgot to ask for the nations? That after his resurrection, it somehow slipped his mind? He was about to be enthroned, but he decided to limit his kingdom to just being a spiritual one. No. Listen to what he says to his disciples. Before he ascends. All authority in heaven and on earth. Has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. And of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe. All that I have commanded you. All authority is his. In heaven. And on earth. So. Disciple the nations and teach them to obey his laws. That sounds like a pretty comprehensive, universal claim to authority and rule. And this is part of the reason that the secular culture today scoffs at the idea of Jesus' resurrection. Wanting to just relegate it to the realm of myth. Not allowing that it's a true story Why is it that if you make a Christian proclamation about sin or about gender or about marriage or about the economy or about abortion or about the definition of men and women, those statements are possibly or even likely to get you canceled, to get you kicked off of YouTube or Twitter or whatever the case may be? Here's why. The secular culture understands the significance of the gospel better than the church does. Let me say that again. The secular culture understands the significance of the gospel better than the church does. They reject it, but they understand the significance of the claim. If the gospel is true, if Jesus really has been raised from the dead, that affects everything. It's a politically explosive truth. It affects government. It affects law. It affects education. It affects the family. It affects everything. And we in the church are often perfectly happy to limit the effects of the gospel to our private lives. But if you understand the reality of the resurrection, it affects everything. While I would disagree with plenty that he would write, on this point, N.T. Wright is on the mark when he writes this. Death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Okay, so think of the tyrant that you know in the world. Their ultimate threat is that they can kill you. They can use their power to kill you. Okay, death is the ultimate weapon of the tyrant. Resurrection does not make a covenant with death. It overthrows it. The resurrection is the ultimate affirmation that creation matters, that embodied human beings matter. That is why the resurrection has always had an inescapable political meaning. That's why the Sadducees in the first century and the Enlightenment in our day have opposed it so strongly. No tyrant is threatened by Jesus going to heaven, leaving his body in a tomb. No governments face the authentic Christian challenge when the church's social preaching tries to base itself on Jesus' teaching detached from the central and energizing fact of his resurrection. The resurrection constitutes Jesus as the world's true sovereign, the son of God, who claims absolute allegiance from everyone and everything within creation. The reality of the resurrection makes a claim about this world, this world matters. And it belongs to Jesus. And that means that the Christian worldview is total. It affects every area of life, every single one. Nothing is outside the scope of Jesus' rule. So as you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on this Easter Sunday, remember these truths about what Jesus' resurrection accomplished. Let your worship of the risen Lord be driven by What the Bible tells you the resurrection did. Jesus' resurrection confirms his words. He said he would rise after three days, and he did. Just as he said. And that means you can trust his word. You can believe his promises. Jesus' resurrection begins his exaltation. Jesus condescended to become a man and to suffer in our place. But beginning with the resurrection... Jesus is exalted to his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus' resurrection is God's stamp of approval on his work of redemption. Was Jesus' sacrifice enough to pay for your sins? Or will God still turn you away even though Jesus died and rose again? Are your sins so terrible that they fall outside the scope of what Jesus accomplished on the cross? No, the resurrection tells us. That Jesus' sacrifice accomplished everything he intended. And if you belong to him, then your sins are paid for. And you're now dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You can be secure in your salvation. Jesus' resurrection is a promise of our future resurrection. We serve a God who brings life out of death. Because Jesus has been raised, we too will be raised. You can have a hope that is certain of life after death. Jesus' resurrection qualifies him to be our high priest. Not only did Jesus offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins, but he's also gone into the holy places in heaven to offer that sacrifice to God. He's opened the way for us to come into God's presence. So come today with confidence because the risen Lord has opened the way. And Jesus' resurrection qualifies him to rule as king. The risen Lord is ruling and reigning as king. And so we call on all earthly rulers to bow the knee to him, to serve him with fear and trembling. And we ourselves bow the knee to him. We commit to obey the king's laws and to serve him wholeheartedly. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for what your word teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus accomplished. We thank you that this is no mere myth. This is nothing that's just a story designed to make us feel better. It's true. The resurrection of Jesus is real. It was physical. And it has significance for us and for our world. Help us to believe your word to understand that what you have said lays a claim on our lives and on this world. Help us to be people who believe the resurrection and live lives that are consistent with the idea that our God brings life out of death. We pray this in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. Amen.